Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Good day to you, podcast listeners. Thanks for returning. Today we have an episode with Ron Kochabar. Ron's a physical therapist who's based in Denver, Colorado. He recently relocated here from Los Angeles. And when that happened, I knew I had to capitalize on the opportunity to have him as a guest on my show. I found Ron a few years ago on the Instagrams. He has a series of videos posted there, short videos, maybe two, four, six minutes long, where he offers a lot of just thoughts on the ways that we think about life, the ways that we behave as people, our belief systems. And this really drew me to understand more about the way Ron's mind works. And today, you get to be part of that adventure. So, buckle your spiritual seatbelt and hang on for a ride. Enjoy the world of Ron Kochavar. Well, I said this in my, my intro outline, blah, 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 but basically I really try to strike the balance between structure and flow. And, mm-hmm. um, most often I think my conversations drift more in the flow, the happy journey kind of, kind of neighborhood things, which is great. That's what I want to get out of people is just let, let the conversation roll and take the form that it takes. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. I'm all about flow. Cool. Right. I've been, yeah. uh, I've been trying to get out of hustle for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's the balance right there, isn't it? The to-do, the structure versus the uh-huh. let things organically move as they are. And it seems like our society is definitely on the to-do list oriented. Well, we're not taught to flow. No. We're only taught to hustle. Yeah. It seems to be, it seems to be inbred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do you think that we is dominantly us Americans or Western culture, including Western Europe? Or is yes. it... What, certainly, I think a lot in Western culture, absolutely, 100% American yeah. culture. I actually think that it all started here in the American culture, mm-hmm. and then with the advent of you know, um, media mm-hmm. and the ability to reach, you know, reach the rest of the world um, almost immediately, mm-hmm. that started to change mm-hmm. a lot of things. I mean, if you look at our influence on some of the remotest areas of the world. Yep. Sure, we bring some good things, but mm. there's a lot more that's on the red side of the ledger. Mm. Um, and definitely that that whole conversation of mm. you know working between hustle and flow, mm-hmm. it's heavily heavily weighted to the side of hustle. Make things happen. Do what you can do, no matter what. Mm. Push, push, press, press. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, and I absolutely did that for a long time, mm. and was lucky enough to learn some lessons from it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Well, that I think that right there kind of encapsulates a lot of what I'd like our discussion to center around is some of those lessons and that tension between that we all negotiate in our lives between that pull, that cultural directive to mm-hmm. just do and accomplish. And um, just in the last couple of days, I've been going back and listening to a lot of your your Instagram posts that you've done, which I'm really grateful for. Thank you for those. 
Uh, we'll definitely put I'm going to start those. those back up here in another couple awesome. of weeks. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> now that this fellowship is finished. Yeah. 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 Cool. So we'll, we'll unpack that for sure. Um, but those have been really instructive for me. And I think, I think you have a really powerful ability to distill and kind of call people out, make them think about their own thought processes and lay them out on the table and sort of make those, those lines of thought accountable when you really bottom line it, you know, what are you, what are you doing? What are you, how are you operating? What's your, what's your operating system telling you to do each day? And let's mm -hmm. unpack that and examine it. Is it programmed? Is it automatic? Did someone tell you to do something and you're just sort of doing that in a robotronic fashion or because you think that you're, you should measure up to some standard, some story that you were told, or are you actually living your life in an examined way? I think mm -hmm. that's, and that plays into not just sports and athleticism, but it plays into everything. It plays into yeah. how you interact with other people and and how you feel when you lay your head down at night on your pillow. Yeah. You know, I mean, about how you day. do anything is how you do everything. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So you know the way you transition on the yoga mat is going to be the same way that you transition on the freeway. Mm. Is going to be the same way that you transition in the Whole Foods parking lot. Right. You know. Um, it's that I, I I think it takes a very intentional mindset to uh, to be able to make a break between those things to mm. make a decision in one in, uh, in in one venue and then make a very different decision in another venue mm -hmm. or in another situation um, and that the ability to be able to do that is based in being able to be present mm -hmm. like in in the moment right now take a breath before the reaction from the stimulus mm. and you know but that's not again that's not how we are it's not how we're taught no it's not how we're bred you know we're, mm. we're bred to be very uh so we're hijacked basically by our emotions Mm. Um, and hijacked by our identities. And, you know, if we've got any biggest addiction at all, it's our, it's our identity. Mm. This is who I am, you know, and we're breaking out of those stories and out of those beliefs because a lot of times we think that they're positive, but you know, any belief doesn't matter what that belief, every, any belief is limited. So, you know, it, uh, that took a long time for me to, to realize that mm -hmm. so. and start to figure it out. And when we have so many beliefs that permeate so many activities or decisions we make in our lives and you start to break down, you realize that common theme, any belief is limited and you start to question the origin or the ideology of that belief. Mm -hmm. And then you apply that to all the beliefs we have. That's a big project. Right, it is a big project. Um, I spent a lot of I spent a lot of time over the years trying to f figure out, I guess air quotes, mm -hmm. trying to figure out how how do I answer or how do I resolve all the problems that I've got on my plate, and. Um, my teachers were very quick to uh, let me know that I'm asking the questions that I'm asking are way too big. 
right? I've got to answer, or I've got to start asking answerable questions, um, which essentially just means getting down to the present moment, mm-hmm. asking a question, usually some binary question in mm-hmm. the present moment. Should I get up? Should I stay in bed? Should I brush my teeth? Should I not brush my teeth? Mm-hmm. Should I look for a job? Should I not look for a job? I mean, breaking it down so that it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we do that, when we do anything long enough, it changes the architecture of our brain. Um, it becomes a habit. You know, you get what you train, no matter what it is. Um, and so, leading to the bigger picture of things, I think the sort of the the mantra or the consciousness that it's kind of left me with is that it's my job to hold on to a vision, but. It's also my job to let go of the outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a space in between those two consciousnesses. And that space, I just choose to call it faith. Mm-hmm. You can call it whatever you want, but this unrelenting grip on whatever vision it is that we have tends to limit the possibilities of what actually could come out of that. Mm. You know, my teachers were very quick to tell me early on in my journey that, you know, like, thank God I didn't get everything that I ever asked for because I would have been selling myself short, which made no sense whatsoever to me. Right. You know, when, you know, when I'm just walking into a situation confused, in pain, depressed, hurting, um, angry, whatever, you know, full of emotion. That didn't make any sense to me. But I think whenever, whenever we hear the truth, the truth pierces through whatever ramparts we may have up, whatever walls, shields, whatever we've got that we've constructed to kind of keep ourselves safe, the truth comes through that, and we hear it. Um, and we may not know what to do with it. We just know that we heard something that meant something. It's like hearing, I think it's like hearing good music that is of a different genre Mm. than you normally listen to. Just wakes up your soul. Yeah, you're like, wait a minute. Well, you know what? I don't usually like this, but this is something about this. Mm -hmm. And we remember it. It it leaves an impact. Um, And that's when we have an opportunity to start paying attention. Mm. Another thing we're really not trained to do, we're trained to sort of move along. If I can't measure it, if I can't label it, if I yep. can't put a name on it, yep. if I can't put it in a box, if I can't hang it in the closet. Mm-hmm. It, park know, it in my driveway. Yeah, park it in my driveway. If, I'm, if I can't objectify it in some way, then... It's not worth attention. Yeah, right. right. If I can't prove it, then what good is it? Yeah. And... You know, and that's just that's so most of the universe. Well, that is that's a textbook definition of a limited belief, right? And it's so easy to illustrate. I mean, the, the simplest example of that is like, do you love your daughter? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Well, prove it to me. How much do you love her? Do you love her 100? <laughs> do you love her 999? Like, right. like, how do you quantify that? How do you now? Of course, we can. We can measure auric fields and we can measure probably different physiological responses to you standing next to a rock or a corpse or your daughter. We would get different ex- different responses in your body that we could measure scientifically, but that's not really getting at the core of what love is. That's just numbers we're assigning to physiological yeah. variables. Well, we can definitely map it for mm-hmm. sure. 
with, mm -hmm. you know, with PET scans right. and functional MRIs. Mm -hmm. We can definitely, we can definitely map what's happening cortically. We can happening, we can measure what's happening physiologically. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all independent uh, in context. You know, what lights up those areas in one situation may not light those areas up in another situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, yeah, it's fascinating where we are with research now because there's so much more that we can objectify, so much more that we can quantify. And especially recently with since all of this COVID stuff has been happening, science all of a sudden has taken on this this height of religion. You know, it, there's this, it's just a buzzword. I'm going to follow the science. I'm going to follow the science. I'm going to follow the science. Well, you know yeah. what? Sometimes you can't follow the science. Mm. Sometimes you got to follow yourself. You know, my, again, you know, my, that's some really good teachers in my lineage. And, you know, my, that was a consistent message from them. It was mm. like, look, if it's your body telling you to do something, then listen to it. Yes. But if it's your mind telling you to do something, then stay with it a little bit longer, mm. which is a which is a big you know because I'm a, I'm a mm. physical therapist, right? So I, and I've worked with tons of athletes of all levels, mm -hmm. and that that sort of high endurance type A push 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 athlete that's out there with this mentality of well if I do more, it has to be better. Mm. Um, that switch gets shut off because there is not a chance in the world that their body is telling them mm. that this is good for them. It's impressive because right. it won't happen that way. Mm. So they, there, there's a, either a conscious or an unconscious uh, feed, feedback loop mm. that just says, nope, I got to push. I'm not listening. You know, I'm going to listen yeah. to my mind. I'm going to listen to my mind. I'm going to listen to my mind. I'm not listening to my body. But if you look at you know, all the longest standing spiritual philosophies, religions, um, um, f sort of philosophical giants of the world that that message is inversed. Mm -hmm. It's, <laughs> it's turn your mind off, you know, mind for others, no mind for self. Mm. You, know, you can use your mind for others. You can't use those same tools when we turn, when we turn everything back to ourselves, you know, turn, you know, the, get into your senses and get out of your mind. I mean, there, there, there's a, there's centuries of, of, uh, not advice of practice that has told us to do that, but that's not the way, that's not what our culture tells us to do. <clears throat> well, what about the idea of mind over matter of, of punch through the wood? Or, you know, I mean, I th what I'm getting at is I think that a lot of our type A personalities, our endurance athletes, or even some of our strength athletes, we, we craft this belief system that the way to success in athletics is to overcome the complaints of the body. It's to disconnect from True. what the body's telling you, you know, yep. shut up legs. That's Jens yep. Voigt's tag sign, yep. right? Or, or hashtag, whatever. Mm -hmm. So when you, you condition yourself to be a badass and you push yourself in the Canadian wilderness and ride like our colleague Trevor does in, 
in Toronto without gloves when it's 38 degrees on coffee for five hours, right. coffee only, then it's a tough guy thing. And it's a Canadian, you know, this is how you, you hammer, you chip away at the stone to make, to carve an athlete out of, you know, marble or alabaster or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you, you do that by putting aside the complaints of the body and just committing to the, the realm of the mind, the box, the, the idea of I'm going to keep stepping forward on this goal independent of the complaints of my body so that I can achieve this level of highness and punch through to, to bring myself to the ultimate level of conditioning. Right. I, so what I would say to that is if we're talking about, we'll say, high-level athletes, endurance athletes, people that really want to push their physical bodies to, to the edge, they do actually listen to their bodies mm-hmm. because they know how to take care of their bodies. Right? Pushing through, I have no problems with pushing through pain. I do it all the time, right? But there's a way to push through pain and not tear down the system, mm-hmm. right? And those people are typically um, good at restoration. Yep. Right? They've got, if they're, if they're, if they're well educated, well schooled, if they, you know, if if what their end goal is to see, I can, I'm going to see what I can do with my body. They know how to push, and then they know how to listen, and they also know how to rest and how to restore. Um, but that is a very small group of people. Right? Mm-hmm. That's a that is a that is a small percentage mm-hmm. of people that that function at that level. Most of the rest of the world is sort of under this bell curve and applying what works in the standard deviations beyond the mean to what's happening under the bell curve. Usually that doesn't, that doesn't work. You know, it's like, it's like your recreational athlete looking at a strength and fitness magazine and deciding that, well, because this endurance, because this super athlete eats 13,500 calories a day, <laughs> and these are, the, you know, these are the breakdowns of their macros, that now that's what I'm going to do. Right. But it doesn't work that way. Right. Like, who's the, you know, I was listening to one of your podcasts. What was her name? Lentine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And she talked a lot about that, right? About this, these, you've got these people that are beyond, outside of the bell curve. Mm-hmm. And to apply that same formula mm-hmm. to those that are inside the bell curve, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, yeah. Right? That might have been Jesse Stensland. Lentine focused on diet. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. she was talking about. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I've been blessed with so many yeah. brilliant guests on my pod. It's yeah. I think the – so what I'm saying is that for those people, mm-hmm. I think they actually do listen to their body, mm-hmm. right? And they've got a they've got a goal in mind. And anytime we push, it doesn't matter what it is we do, anytime we push to achieve a goal, we are willingly putting ourselves out of balance. We we have to. We can't we can't we can't go to an extreme of anything and still stay in balance. Can't just cuz you're not going to grow, you're not going to exactly. get stronger. It won't, won't happen right. that way, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So the balance then comes in, I'm going to push and then I'm going to relax mm-hmm. and then I'm going to put, there's this ebb and flow, yeah. right? But those aren't the people that I'm really talking. That's, that's not what most people do, 
You know, most people either push, 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 or most people take listening to their body to the other end of the spectrum. And they're like, nope, I feel a tiny bit of discomfort. Mm. I can't do this, you know? And I see that all the time in the, you know, in the clinic. Interesting. You know, it's people come in, will it hurt? Okay, well, let's have a conversation about what is the kind of hurt that's okay to push through uh-huh. and how to push through it, right? Because you have, to, you have to test tissues in order for tissues to heal. And that's sort of a paradigm for life, right? Um, and then there's these other people that you have to throttle back. You know, listen to this pain, don't listen to this pain. Yeah. All right? Yeah, it's about discernment. What type of pain are you experiencing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What's appropriate? What is going to get you training stimulus? What's going to make you stronger? Mm-hmm. What's going to break you down? And mm-hmm. in some cases, that's really clear cut. Like I use this example in bike fitting all the time. You know, it used to be that saddles were these crude devices that were just torture chambers and basically put your your junk to sleep. Yep. A man or woman who's just a tor- mm-hmm. device of torture. Now saddle uh, saddles have evolved quite a bit, and we've got a lot better options on the plate. There's still some negotiation to figure out which saddle works for which person, mm-hmm. but it's saddle technology has taken massive steps forward in the last decade, fortunately. Mm-hmm. But it used to be this old school paradigm of, you know, when you started training in January and you were getting ready for your season, and it was, you know, you had races in in March or April coming, you went out on your first few rides and your neck hurt from carrying the weight of your head and your helmet and your back hurt because you were acclimating to the the forward hinged hip hinge position mm-hmm. of cycling and your legs hurt because you just pedaled 80 miles for the first mm-hmm. time in a few months and your lungs hurt because you were breathing all day long and your respiratory and inspirational muscles became fatigued from that and but also your crotch fell asleep and mm-hmm. we didn't used to have the discernment between those types of pain your hands went numb and it mm-hmm. was all put in the category of this is how you HTFU and become strong enough to become a better bike rider mm-hmm. and and become a better athlete. Now we've started to enter the paradigm, I would say, and I try to educate my clients about this all the time, of discerning between which pains are constructive. You know, if you mm-hmm. ride your bike for 80 miles, your, your butt and your legs, your quads should probably hurt. <laughs> but we don't want your junk to fall asleep. That's not necessary. We can do away with that. That's not going right. to make you tougher. It's not going to make you better on the bike. It's not going to learn teach you how to suffer better. We've got plenty of suffering to do in the constructive categories. Right. So let's start to discern which ones. Mm-hmm. And so those types are more clear cut. What's interesting is you could send someone out for a really hard workout on a Wednesday. Let's say they've got two hard interval workouts per week, a Wednesday and a Saturday, just hypothetically. And you might give them that set of workouts for two weeks or three weeks or maybe four weeks in a row. Mm -hmm. And for those four weeks, they might be quite constructive, but you can't do that same workout for 12 weeks in a row, even though the load doesn't change, or maybe it progresses incrementally. You can't just bludgeon someone repeatedly with the same stimulus over and over again. And then it, because then it turns the corner and becomes not constructive stimulus. It breaks you down. Right. Right. Yeah. The poison and the nectar come from the same flower. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 Or the dose makes the poison maybe is another way to look yeah. at. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think it that that leads to another part of that conversation, you know, the the difference between pain and suffering. Yep. You know, pain happens, but suffering is simply the story that we wrap around our pain. Mm. And we can dress 
we can dress our pain up um, any way that we that we want to. Problem is, is that we usually do it unconsciously, mm. and we do it based on whatever limiting belief systems we've got within it, whatever identities we've decided um, that we that we are, that we want to be. Um, then pain becomes a very different thing because it gets run through the filters of suffering. So what can be a very normal pain, mm-hmm. get somebody out riding, riding first time for 80 miles, yeah, everything, of course your quads are going to burn. Right. right. But that's pain. And that's the kind of pain that if there's not suffering attached to it, mm-hmm. it comes and it goes. That's normal. But if we send somebody out to do something that they may not be ready to do, they're not at a level to be able to accept, their tissues aren't at a level and at a level where they're able to accept that kind of load. Mm-hmm. And they end up with pain, but their pain story, which comes with a whole table full of their own experience, their pain story decides for them that this pain is bad. I've had pain before. These were the results of my pain. I saw my mother, my brother, my next door neighbor go through this type of pain and this is where they ended up. Hmm. Now all of a sudden you've got several narratives that are feeding into that and suffering becomes equivocal to pain. It becomes contiguous with pain. Mm -hmm. Then we then you've got a then you've got some problems because we want to decouple those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So in your experience, when you you mentioned a few minutes ago, you have a client that comes into the clinic, and they they have the slightest sensation of pain in a given exercise or mm-hmm. whenever they're doing whatever they're doing, and they immediately kind of put the brakes on. And is that your experience that they've just got more of those belief systems that are that are tied that are tying suffering to that pain or maybe they're projecting into the future about what that, where that pain's going to escalate. So that is a very individual thing. Okay. Right. My job as a clinician when people come in because I work primarily in outpatient orthopedics now. So it's primarily musculoskeletal pain. Mm-hmm. So my first job is to build a rapport with somebody. I mean, most most people haven't had the the best of experiences in our country's healthcare system. Yeah, they're sort of shuttled through like cattle. The primary complaint, if you look at the literature, is that my providers don't spend enough time with me. They don't listen to me. Mm-hmm. They talk through me or to me, um, mm-hmm. but they don't pay any attention. To me, they tell me, yeah, rather than listen. Not seeing the client as an individual, right? Yeah. So, being a being a physical therapist, we're in a very unique position within the healthcare system. We've got usually more time with patients, mm-hmm. so that we can listen and we can start building rapport. And I'm not limited by, say, a, a, a psychologist who by their practice act can't put their hands on people. So not only do I get to listen, 
but to get to touch. Mm-hmm. So I get to interact in ways that other clinicians don't. Now, physicians, absolutely, they're allowed to touch people. The problem is that most of them don't. Mm. You know, most often, they're on a computer and in and out in a few minutes and you know, prescribe some sort of medication. So my job is to first build that rapport. Mm-hmm. My second job then, because the primary reason people come in to see me is because they've got pain or dysfunction. My primary thing is to figure out or create a clinical picture or create a different story, create a story that makes sense. And there's several different reasons of why somebody would be having some sort of pain. They can, it can either be that their pain is purely nociceptive in nature, meaning it's being driven by some pathology in a tissue. I have an acute sprained ankle, mm-hmm. right? There's a hematoma. You've got ecchymosis or bruising. Um, there's all sorts of primary inflammatory issues that are happening at, at the site of the lesion. That is, in the beginning, and when it's acute, that's going to be mostly a nociceptive type of pain. Right. It may, there, yes, you have, a, you have torn tissue or you have disrupted tissue. It makes sense that you would have this type of pain. Mm-hmm. The other type of pain would be a neuropathic type of pain, meaning that there is pain that is being generated or experienced is probably a better word um, because there's a lesion within the nervous system somewhere tore a nerve, stretched a nerve, impinged on a nerve, mm-hmm. the nerve becomes inflamed. And that can and that can very often happen along with nociceptive type pain. And those two things can they, they work hand in hand, right? But there's usually a reason that you can point to. Right? But acute, there's also a different type or, of pain. Yeah. There's also this sort of chronic, persistent pain that mm-hmm. doesn't go away. And that can have a whole myriad of different presentations. Mm-hmm. And in the literature, that is starting to become what's called nociplastic pain. Pain that is hmm. not otherwise um, well described by specific problem in the tissue or a specific issue in the nervous system. So these people, you know, they may come in and they may have a simple, they may have a very simple, you know, sprained ankle, no bruising, no swelling, full range of motions. Their musculature actually works fairly well, but you touch their skin on the, on the top of where this ankle sprain is and they jump off the table, Hmm. right? So when somebody has a, a noxious response, to a stimulus that is normally not noxious that's called allodynia Hmm. and when somebody has allodynia that's a very clear indicator that it's not the problem is not in the tissues there is now a there's now a portion of their pain that is being handled by their nervous system Mm -hmm. specifically within their central nervous system and so it becomes it can become a big challenge because to bring you back around what you said, if somebody comes in and they've got, they've got a little bit of pain and they jump away from it, well, my job is to figure out, okay, why? If they do a, they do a lunge and they've got knee pain and I notice that there's some sort of aberrant movement, movement that happens at their knee 
and I bring them out of that position. I change the way they move and then they do a lunge and their pain goes away. Well, that's one, that's one story that might, you know, they clearly had a mechanical problem. So we changed the mechanics and we got a different outcome. But if I can't change any of that, and then I go in and test their, test their knee and their knee is normal. It's got full range of motion, no effusion, musculature works. Um, there's no ligamentous laxity. Tendons are all you know, non-tender to palpate. There's no bony tenderness to palpation. Like their exam is normal. But every time they move, even if you correct their movement, they still have the same symptom reproduction. Then we got to start unpacking some different, some different things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, you, then I would start asking questions about their history. What is pain? What is it? What do you think is happening? Hmm. What is your primary concern? Because very often we've got very good literature, very good evidence in the literature to suggest this stuff. Now, once you start unpacking that. There's a lot of non-therapeutic effects that happen, which in layman's terms is essentially the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. You've got a provider that sits and actually talks to a patient or to a client, and that client feels heard, their chemistry changes. Mm -hmm. Their neurochemistry changes, their blood chemistry, everything changes. So we may, I may do something to them in the clinic. I may change their movement. I may get in and do some like instrument assisted soft tissue stuff. You may go in and needle them, um, may do, you know, may manipulate a joint, get a cavitation Mm -hmm. and then we get them up and reassess them and their pain is gone. But we don't, there's no, there is no evidence out there that will validate that just because I did a particular intervention on a particular problem and then got the outcome that I was looking for. There's no evidence out there to validate my intervention, right? And that can be a that can be a tough field to play on. So if, uh, if you're a clinician, so when you do that, um, you know, adjustment of a joint or whatever, and you get that effect, and then the pain seems to go away mm-hmm. because there's no evidence. So it suggests one of two things: one, we just haven't figured out the right study to correlate the the treatment with that effect or mm-hmm. that the athlete believed in what you did and that was a right. placebo effect. But mm-hmm. I mean, going right. back to talk to Which, discuss. So just to, just, yeah. to jump on that. So mm-hmm. if you are a clinician who's in the middle of a, a fellowship, right, a sports medicine fellowship or which is one of the one of the fellowships that I teach in in, in Los Angeles, I teach in a sports fellowship and a spine fellowship. Mm-hmm. So if you are a, a clinician, one of these fellows that's in a fellowship, then that may become a question that you then decide to apply to some research. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, this is fascinating to me. How do, why when I have three different people that come in with the exact same problem, I can do three different things with these people and get the exact same result. Mm. Why is that? Yeah. Then then that becomes a fascinating arena to start researching. Mm -hmm. And we may uncover some evidence, but if we are the personality type that likes to take on, that gets stuck in our sort of sphere of knowledge and think that 
our sphere of knowledge is everything that there is, mm -hmm. all that stuff does is feed into our ego. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our ego gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But our ego gets much bigger exponentially than our actual sphere of knowledge. <laughs> right? Right. And um, it can be, that can be a tricky, a tricky thing mm. uh, to follow the science mm. always. Like I've got, I have three science degrees. I've got a bachelor's in science, a master's in science, a doctoral okay. degree in science. Mm. I've done three postdoctoral fellowships, two postdoctoral fellowships and a residency. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, I know how to follow the science. Right. But having spent the amount of time in the clinic being a clinician, every single patient that you see as a clinician is essentially a research project with an N of one. Mm -hmm. and, and so patterns start to start to emerge. And the patterns that emerge are no person, no group of people, no patient population can be specifically nailed down and labeled with one or two or a handful of randomized clinical control trials. Mm -hmm. You just can't. Right? Mm -hmm. If that was all we needed to be able to treat patients was evidence, was empirical evidence that's in the peer-reviewed um, body of literature, well, then we could train any monkey to be a provider. Right. Or any yeah. AI system. Yeah, exactly. Which you know, wouldn't even we have can't, to be that complex. You know? Right. And that's the, that's, that's the issue, mm -hmm. really, that I have now with this sort of elevation of science to religion, basically. Yeah. I and mean, that's kind of where we're at right yeah. now. And if you look at what evidence-based medicine is, what it is in its definition, evidence-based medicine is a triangle. And there's only one leg of that triangle that is empirical peer-reviewed evidence. Mm -hmm. The second leg of that is the clinician and their effectiveness, their efficiency, their efficacy as a clinician. And the third leg of that is the patient. Mm -hmm. What does the patient want? What does the patient need? What is the patient's chief complaints? What is the patient okay with? Those three legs are evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. Evidence-based medicine is not practicing medicine or healthcare um, or training or whatever it is that we do. It's not just practicing based on what is in the literature, right? Because the literature is constantly changing, constantly. What we thought was good 10 years ago has gone through, yeah. uh, has gone through this ebb and flow, you know? There was a time when eggs were good for us, then eggs right. were bad for right, us, right. then eggs were good for us, and then it was just egg whites, and then it was no, you got to eat the whole thing, and then it was no, you can't eat you can't eat eggs that are that come from chickens that are stuffed twelve chickens to a cage. You can only eat eggs from happy chickens that have gone to Disneyland and you know eaten grass. <laughs> and it, it that it, it it reminds me of that the podcast that you had with uh, with Lentine. Yeah, you know, you, your body knows. Mm. what it needs, right? And if we can somehow throttle back, pump the brakes to get back to this place where we learn how to actually listen to our own bodies, the answers are there. Mm. Any good clinician, any good provider 
is going to give you that exact same message. And then they're going to help you walk through a process to mm. learn how to listen to it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do okay. as, as a clinician. And that has, you know, that has a thousand different ways to get to a single, single endpoint. Recently, Paul did a podcast with Irvin Laszlo. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you happen to catch that one, but they spoke about science and scientists and it, their conversation definitely touched on some of the points you've just brought up, which are, well, Paul kind of very publicly expresses his frustration with science because he, he sort of talks about how he feels that a lot of scientists have basically been bought by companies to produce biased research, to be blunt, and to support that company's financial agenda or agenda for sales or, or whatever. And he confronted Irving Laszlo with this question, and Irving's response was quite interesting. He said that really what Paul, Paul was technically confusing a true scientist with someone who is a technician who's been bought, who's been trained in science, and then has specifically been hired to produce this type of white paper or maybe even not a white paper. Maybe it's a straight up ostensibly scientific study. Mm -hmm. And the problem is from this, from the public side, we have no way to discern and discover or really to discern which realm of science is, is truly scientific in the sense of an exploration, an objective look at whatever, a set of data to put down a hypothesis, look at the data, perform the experiment, look at the data, and then draw your conclusion and decide whether or not your hypothesis held up. Mm -hmm. I mean, from that perspective, science is really about proving not necessarily what is, but in some cases, in many cases, what isn't, right? Yeah. It makes tiny steps forward saying, well, we can establish this, which means everything outside of that boundary, by definition, we don't know yet, mm -hmm. or we can't say with certainty. And the scientific mind tends to look at that pile of data as this enormous amount of things. Mm -hmm. It's, I might think of it as inwardly focused or focused towards the center of this pile of data, the sphere. And when you're inside that sphere, it looks like this giant world. But the right. reality is when you examine it against what we don't know, it's... Right. Well, that's the sphere of knowledge, right? If, right. If, right. Uh, if all of our knowledge that, you know, that we currently know was to fit inside of a balloon... Mm -hmm right? Then all of what we don't know is on the outside of the balloon. So as we increase our sphere of knowledge, as that balloon gets bigger, mm -hmm. it actually increases the surface area of the outside of the balloon. So the more we know, the more, the more we, we don't, don't know. Right. And any good mm -hmm. researcher, any good scientists, and I, and I, and I know a number of them mm. are going to tell you that the results of this research tell us this. They are limited within these confines, within these, um, within these parameters, within these exclusion and inclusion parameters. And if you look at any good research paper, the conclusion section, the end, the last section is going to say more research still needs to be done. Right. Right. They're, most scientists, when you speak to them, are going to say, well, you know, we just don't know. What we do know is this, but what we don't know is a much, is a much bigger picture, right? But that is not what 
the general public wants to hear when they walk into a doctor's office with a headache, walk into a psychiatrist's office with some sort of an emotional problem, Mm -hmm. when they walk into a trainer because they want to take their training to the next level. They don't, what they want is a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. They want a treatment strategy with goals attached to it. And they want to be part of the decision making. And you think so? I think so. Um, seems like a lot of clients want, I have experiences with people, it seems, maybe I'm misinterpreting their, their desires, but it seems like they just want to walk in the door and be told what to do because they don't want to think about it. Correct. Right? They, they're, all their energy is tied up in Correct. taking the kids to soccer or their financial problems or their life stress. Right. You're right. And then, any, like I said, any good provider, any good trainer, right? how many people have you have worked with that have come to you with that in mind? Just tell me what to do. Yeah. Give me, write me out a program. The, the simple right? answer. Can you yeah. just write me out a program? Yeah. And our, our response to that is almost unanimously, ubiquitously, is it doesn't work like that. Right. I can't just give you a program. Well, why not? And then that starts this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, any good, any good clinician, provider, trainer, what have you, mm-hmm. is going to then involve that person, their client, their patient, what have you. They're going to involve them in the conversation. Mm-hmm. What do you want? Why do you want it? What, where do you see yourself in, in a given amount of time? What are you willing to do to get there? What are you not willing to do? Like, it becomes a, a conversation. And that is much more what I'm interested in, in terms of when I, because I'm always on this sort of steep learning curve, looking for the next thing to do. When I'm looking for somebody to learn from, those are the people that I'm looking to learn from, are those people that want to involve. They, they don't let people just get away with, uh, we'll just do this. But you're right. That's what, that, that, that is what most people want. They don't realize that they want, most of the time, they don't realize that they want something else. Yeah. Again, because we're so ingrained to just have things taken care of for us. If I go to the doctor, I'm going to get a pill. If I go to a trainer, I'm going to get a program. Hmm. They're going to do something to me, and that is going to change me. And that is all the more involved that I need to be. It's going to fix my problem. It, exactly. Yeah. Right? I, it seems like that some of that, I think, is a function of just our modern complex lives, right? I mean, we all, we've had so many discussions where we imagine what the paleo man looked like or the caveman looked like. And mm-hmm. I don't think we really know, but we, the story we have in our head is that they, the men go out and hunt food and the women stay home and tend camp and watch after the children. And then the men come home with the, antelope or whatever and then they cook it over the fire and their days are simple we don't they don't have to take the audi to get the oil changed or to get the system software updated they don't have to go buy the new ipad they don't have to take their kids to soccer ballet yoga and you know voice lessons they don't have to i don't know take their shirts to the dry cleaner all the shit that we do running around every day all these all this busyness Mm -hmm. and when you add you know, lawn mowing or dealing with the lawn care people and the 55 other things that add on our to-do list every day, by the time you get to, man, my shoulder's killing me. Mm-hmm. It's hurt me for four years and now I can barely move it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go see Ron 
because I need him to just fix my shoulder. Can he just give me a pill and give me two stretches I can do for 6.8 minutes a day in the morning and my shoulder will feel better? And they walk in the door and, and because they've got all these other things on the plate, they don't have time to dig into the why, the emotional component of why, what their belief system is and how it's played into this long-term right. shoulder pain or their daily movement patterns and how when they click a mouse 12,000 times a day, it builds this right. rotator cuff problem or whatever they've got. And, and they, so they want that simple solution just as a function of the fact that we're so overloaded. Do you think that that's... Yeah, and that speaks to a much deeper issue. Mm. The difference between a cure and a difference between actual healing. Mm. Right? Very, it's very seldomly does a cure lead to healing, true healing. But very, very often a true healing will lead to a cure. And what I mean by that, a cure is something that just takes away the symptoms, right? Yes, I can give somebody very likely, especially if what they have is a a tissue-driven problem, a very nociceptive problem. I can give them a couple of stretches and say, okay, do this, and your shoulder pain will go away. But like we just talked about, if you keep doing only those two things, at some point that stops working, right? So now this cure that I had, inevitably those symptoms end up coming back. And that's true kind of across the board. You know, I can give somebody, you can give somebody Tylenol for a headache Mm -hmm. and a couple of exercises for some knee pain, um, a couple of cognitive behavioral um, exercises for some, you know, emotional issues that somebody might be having, a couple of training tricks to, to be able to get them over a hump. But we're complex beings and we've got a consciousness and we've got this sort of addiction to our own identity that we are hauling along with that. And what usually comes along with that is I should be able to do something and I should be able to do something in the moment and get rid of, or somebody should be able to give me something and get rid of this problem right? so that it never comes back. The problem is, is if you cut out a tumor, that is not in any way going to change the circumstances that created the tumor. Excellent analogy. Yeah. So there's a high likelihood mm-hmm. that that tumor will come Resurface back, somehow. Right? Yeah. And so at some level, we have to dig deeper. Yeah. We have to. If you look at, you know, most of your cancer survivors that have remained cancer free, they didn't just go in and get surgery. It changed their lives. Changed their lives. Mm-hmm. There's a number, and, and they changed their lives in a number of different arenas. They changed their diet. They changed their mobility level, their exercise levels. They changed their spirit, their consciousness. They, f- they focused and followed, you know, whatever practitioner they were. You know, some people, some people get are sort of married to this idea that I have to go through medication. I have to go through chemo. I have to go to radiation. Fine. Some people are like, there's no way I'm going through chemo and medication, mm-hmm. um, radiation. And they end up, and both of those patients end up cancer-free for a long time. Why? Well, because that was a multi-layered approach. They changed a whole number of things. So if we change the conditions 
that created the problem. Simply by changing the conditions, very often a cure comes along with that. The symptoms go away. The disease go away, goes away. That disease state is no longer even a part of our field right. anymore. Change the and, terrain. Yeah. Is that a way to think about yeah. it? Yeah. But to put Band-Aids on things, yeah. you know, there's, there isn't any healing that, that very rarely is there any healing. There might be relief. That, but, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But things will resurface. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I think, again, so if I have a patient that comes in to me and is like, well, can't you just give me two, two shoulder stretches that I can do for six minutes a day? Yeah. Yeah, but it's not going to work for very long. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I see patients all the time that come in and it's very clear that one something that actually is going to help them because they've got a hot, flared up, inflamed joint. Something that's going to help is probably a corticosteroid injection. Right. Right. They have their place. I think it's a very small window, but they've got their place and they work. Mm-hmm. Right. There's good evidence to support it. Um, but how did that so, joint become and so? So they, you know, I'll call up one of our sports med docs and say, "Hey, can you see this person for a?" <clears throat> A patellofemoral injection, right? They've got big, hot, flared-up patellofemoral joint or a tibiofemoral joint. Yeah. Um, and then they get better. And they get better because their primary problem was that they had a lot of inflammation, mm. but they didn't change any of the conditions that led to that inflammation. Yeah. And they didn't want to listen to the conversation that I had with them that if we don't change the conditions, this is going to come back. But now they got a magic bullet. And so the next time this happens, and they go back to a doctor, they get another injection, but that injection doesn't last as long. And then they go back and they get another, and they get another. And then any good physician is going to say, look, when it comes to these injections, you can have three injections in the course of a year. You can have four injections in the course of the lifetime of that joint. And then simply because of Kenalog or the tramcinolone, the the, the uh, corticosteroid has a very uh, deleterious effect yeah. on connective tissue. Yeah, you know, the tissue becomes brittle, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, their 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 magic pill no longer is magic anymore. And so then they go and start doctor shopping, try to find another physician that'll do more, or they change gears all. You know, they do a 180 and they're like, all right, I'm going to go and find another practitioner. I'm going to go and find somebody else that's going to help. Right. And so they, and so we become addicted to healing. We become addicted to fixing and refixing the same problem over and over and over and over again. And that becomes just as much of a problem as, you know, the, the opposite end of that continuum. Mm -hmm. And again, the answer lies in the middle, in, in balance, and knowing that there are times in life when we are going to have to allow ourselves to be out of balance just so that we can grow. And then when we grow, there's this return to balance until we're ready to move outside of balance again. And... You know, that's 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 a difficult uh, that's a difficult territory to navigate with the people that are on the ends that are on the extremes 
these people that are just push, 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 and these people that are, you know, rest, 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 rest. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, I was listening to one of your your posts uh, this weekend. Wait, this is the weekend. I don't know, a couple days ago. And you had said, you were talking about that tension between growth and rest and yang and yin. And you said, and you were talking about the cycle of people who treat a problem and then they, and then they treat it superficially and then it comes back and they treat it superficially and it comes back and they're caught in that, that cycle, that tailspin. And I think you phrased it, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but you said something like, well, at, at a certain point you have to realize that you're going through that same process over and over again. And you're, you're, for some reason, you're getting something out of holding on to that problem. Yeah. Right. And the question is, what are you getting out of repeating that cycle? Exactly. And that's a powerful question yeah. to ask, right? Yeah. You're never done until you're done. Mm. Right. So the question really is, what are you getting out of not being done? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is as easy as it, as easy as it gets. Yeah. You know, and I think anytime we make an I statement, an I am statement, I am this, I am that, um, I was meant to be this, right? I am here for this. That is, an, that is a direct opportunity to stop in that moment, turn the mirror back to ourselves and start on that process of discernment. Why do I think I'm like that? Where did that come from? Who decided that I am this? Did I decide that I am this? Or, you know, I see this a lot with uh, all the student athletes that have got kids, right? Usually the most challenging sort of juggernaut to deal with in the room is the parents, mm. right? Especially if they've got a kid who is an excellent athlete. They are outstanding in what they do. And especially if that parent has got sort of unresolved issues that they're working out through their kid, and that happens all the time. Right. right? You got these throwers, these pitchers that come in, hmm. and they're throwing 110, 120, 130 pitches, and then wondering why they've got dead arm. Right. Right. And they're, and when you start looking at sort of a, when you start looking at sort of a a tissue based uh, trajectory to get there child back on track it means rest yeah right it means you know what i realize that they've got a club tournament this after um, you know this weekend but unless you want to have some more long-standing permanent issues happen they can't do this mm -hmm. and if you know if a kid gets put through that enough this thing that they initially loved to do now all of a sudden they very often, are, they despise doing it. They hate doing it. They're doing it for complete other reasons, right? Mm -hmm. They're doing it because they got saddled with this. This is what you're supposed to do. Um, yeah. And those kind of contracts in all of us, we all have got those kind of contracts that got written a long time ago. And we've been operating under these contracts for decades very often, mm -hmm. really without question. And if we do question it, usually the answer is, well, that's just who I am. You know, 
I'm just this, I'm just that. I can't do that because I'm a vegan. I can't do this because I'm an athlete. The programming I, is too it, deep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it, there is this sort of magic moment every time we take this hard stance. <clears throat> we say, I am this. This is my purpose. Mm-hmm. I believe this. That's a, that, yeah. Those are the prime, prime, prime opportunities to stop. Yeah. And then reaffirm why. You know, am I really this? Am I, am I actually, is this really what I want? Or am I just choosing? How did I arrive at this, 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 this decision? Yeah. Right. And your body will tell you. Hmm. you know, our mind is not going to tell us. Our body will tell us. You know? One of my, one of my teachers who told me, it doesn't matter how effectively or efficiently you may be going north. If your mission in life is to go south, <laughs> you are going the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Never have I ever forgotten that. Mm. You know, how true is that? And if we look at the fact that we absolutely can push, 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 and make things happen. 100% we can do that. You hold on hard enough, tight enough. You hustle, 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 and push through. Yes, we can absolutely make things happen. Right? How often, when we make those things happen, is there satisfaction in that moment? How often does that happen? And if you look at a, if you look at somebody that is in that mindset, you know the the extreme sort of artist mindset, athlete mindset. They accomplish, and with that accomplishment, what comes with that? Because usually, in that kind of consciousness, there's a profound sense of dissatisfaction, an unfulfillment. There may be this momentary high because I accomplished something, but very often that is followed almost immediately with, all right, what's the next thing? Because I'm not getting enough out of this moment. And that, that, when I have to have those conversations with, with, with clients, it, it usually I will frame that conversation in the difference between materialization and manifestation. Mm. Materialization is absolutely that I can make something happen. Right? doesn't matter how many times I get knocked off that horse, get knocked off that pedestal. I am going to pick myself up and I'm going to drive forward, drive forward, drive forward and make, make things happen. Right? And if what is truly my mission is to do that, then when I have materialized that because I have just driven through and driven through, then there will be some satisfaction with it. That's not usually what happens because materialization is exactly that. Me in control. I am driving. I am going to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Manifestation is something completely different. Manifestation is these things coming to us. Yes, we had a vision. Yes, we tried to do what we could to hold on to that vision or to stay in line with that vision. But there was a willingness to sort of let be what was going to be. 
And usually those stories of manifestation was these things arrive almost as a gift. Like, I don't know, I don't know how it happened. It, it just happened, like I woke up one day and everything that wasn't making sense, all of a sudden it made sense. Yep. I woke up one day and what I needed showed up, right? When the student's ready, the teacher appears. Like it, and that is a different, that's a very different thing to have happen because manifestation involves or it, it, it requires this letting go of the reins. This, you know what, I can do enough to get to a certain point, but at that point, I don't have any control over that. As anymore. you said before, let go of the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We can do all the work to get to the precipice, mm. but then we need to take a step. Yeah. We're either going to take that step and surrender, or we're going to find a way to keep climbing, or we're going to stay on that precipice and never actually take the chance. Mm. What my on. experience has been is that the universe does not respond until we commit and commitment in my view involves surrender it involves being willing to not just listen to the science to learn how to listen to the answers that are already within us and that we're just not taught to do that hmm. maybe now we can go backwards and rewind and get some context cool that sounds great okay <laughs> wonderful will you tell us about your background where you grew up what you studied your life experiences that led you to become a pt and sure i'm an air force brat i remember once the second time that i dislocated my kneecap my patella i went to a doctor and i don't know how i might have might have been 20 19 something like that and this doctor told me that I couldn't bend my knee for a year. And I was instantly just pissed. Mm. I was like, that's how, what? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a young kid. I was a young kid and I knew that that was, that was a bunch of horseshit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I just took it. I just, I kind of, I dragged this mentality that I had my whole life along. I was like, well, screw you. I'm going to show you that that's not the case. And I essentially rehabbed myself without knowing that I was rehabbing myself. I doubled down on my, on my gym workouts. Uh, there was a lot of pain that I pushed through. And then I sought the help of some friends of mine that knew more than me, that were uh, competitive powerlifters and bodybuilders. And they were very quick to deconstruct what I was doing in the gym and start to construct a program that actually worked. So they taught me how to move. And they, they taught me how to, how to train in season and train off season. They taught me how to, how to stagger loads. They, they taught me all this stuff. And because I had now this, this uh, chip on my shoulder that I needed to prove something mm -hmm. to this doctor who I knew I was never gonna see again, there's no way I was going back to this guy. But uh, so I did that and I got better. Um, and I ended up going. So the background story of when all of this was happening is 
I was a drug addict and an alcoholic. Ah. That that was playing underneath all of this for mm-hmm. a long, long, long time. And uh, so when I went to school, out of directly out of high school, I went to the University of Minnesota, and I got kicked out mm-hmm. after my fourth quarter there. I got kicked. I got a letter from the school saying you were invited not to return. <laughs> it put me on academic insufficiency, and mm-hmm. I was like. Part of me felt relieved, and then part of me felt like I took a blow. Mm-hmm. And so then I subsequently took a couple of took a couple of years. Then I ended up going to another school, ended up leaving that school. And so I I was I was going I was being an addict in everything that I did in life. Everything was all or nothing. Everything there was there was no flow. There was only hustle. There was only push. Mm-hmm. And um, when I decided to go back to school to finish my undergraduate degree, I really didn't know what it was I wanted to do. But I had all of these experiences. And in a couple, in the two years prior to me going back to school, I had been working in healthcare. I was a home health aide for a guy that was a quadriplegic. Um, I was a nursing assistant in a locked psych ward. Wow. Right. And I knew, I was like, there's something about, like there was something about being connected to people because the way that I was brought up, I was brought up to respect relationship. And in the end, that's kind of my whole spiritual practice is about relationship. How am I relating to whatever is or whoever is out there? Um, so I, I had this experience of working, I guess, in healthcare. But now I wanted to go back to school, but I didn't really know what to do. So I went and I sat in front of a guidance counselor who summarily looked at my previous transcripts and sat there with his arms crossed and... It's like, well, I want you to do this test. So I did this Myers-Briggs test. Yeah. But I did the long version, the 300-question one. Okay. And I had to wait three weeks for the results to come back. And I went back, and I sat across the desk from him, and and uh, he kind of kicked back, kicked his feet up, and looked down. He's like, well, according to this, and his eyes opened a little bit, and he's like, according to this, you should be a doctor. You should be an architect. Um, a... Uh, I was just a doctor, an architect, an actor, mm-hmm. or a physical therapist. <laughs> and I had no idea what a physical therapist was. Mm-hmm. I, had no, I had no clue what a physical therapist was. I knew what a doctor and an architect and, and an actor was. were. Yeah. Um, and the next thing he said was, before you get any big ideas, I want you to know that being a physical therapist is more than just passing out basketballs. <laughs> and he said that to me with this the same smugness that that doctor said to me, can't bend your knee again for a year. Right. And I decided in that moment yeah. that I was going to be a physical therapist. That was your choice. <laughs> and I, hadn't, I, I didn't even know what a physical therapist was. I had no idea what a physical therapist was. Not passing out basketballs. Right. More than. But it was to spite somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right. And that had been, that was my programming. Right? I was on the defensive constantly. 
And, uh, and so I attacked school the same way I attacked everything, the same way I attacked drugs, the same way I attacked alcohol, the same way I attacked everything with a short fuse and a lot of power. Mm. And, and I got a lot accomplished. And I got my degree mm-hmm. and no fulfillment. Mm-hmm. None. Zero. I get zero. I'm like, this is it. This is, this is my degree came in the mail. My diploma came in the mail. Mm. Like that, that meant that I, I didn't do anything. Right. And so I then decided to start doing some other things with my life. And I'm one of those people that doesn't have a problem with dropping everything and starting anew. Right. I, um, I bought a one-way ticket to Europe. I started modeling. I worked as a model for a few years, several years. And the only reason I did that was because while I was in the middle of all this stuff, going through, going through getting my undergraduate degree and working in these, um, in these uh, long-term care facilities and things that I was doing, somebody randomly said, hey, you know what? You should be a model. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm not going to be a model. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what? That's crazy. And they're like, I tell you what, we're just going to send you out on a casting and see what happens. So they sent me out on a Budweiser commercial casting <laughs> that I summarily booked. Uh-huh. And it was shot by Michael Bay. Wow. In northern Minnesota uh-huh. in July. Mm-hmm. Or not in January. In January. So it was, Yeah. So it was I, was, I was playing guy. hockey. Oh, okay. All right. We're at... And, it, anyway, it's, it's, it was it, it was a Michael Bay commercial from way back in the mid '90s, okay. late '90s, um, and I made fifty grand off of that commercial. Nice. Over the like every thirteen weeks, this mailbox money would come yeah. from residuals and hot spots that they cut and recut and things like that. Yeah. I was like, well, shit, this is good money. I could do that. Yeah. I mean, if I did. If I actually went and did this, I could make enough money to pay for graduate school. I could go back to PT school. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And then I immersed myself in that world. After I was newly sober, mm. very newly sober, like within a couple of years. And let me tell you, trying to stay sober when you're living in a different country, in a business that is built on image and partying yeah I was lost I was lost I mean I found some I found some meetings to go to mm-hmm. but not very many and most of them were in you know either in Spanish or Italian or French or you know wherever it was that I was yeah and so I eventually quit that business moved back to Minnesota was gonna. St- I went and then I started doing a bunch of prereqs so that I could get into graduate school, into PT school, and I had to retake physics and I had to retake or- organic chemistry and all this stuff. And I hadn't been in school in a while. It was challenging, mm-hmm. but if I'm good at anything, it is pushing. I am good at materializing mm-hmm. things, making things happen, mm-hmm. and I knew that about myself. And so I just did it. I can put my head down, push with the best of them. And so when you during the modeling stint, though, were you able to stay sober? Yeah, yeah, I stayed. I was, I, I was clean and sober for twenty five years. Good for you. Um, and that's a whole other story of how that, yeah, what happened with that. But so I pushed through. I finished these prereqs. 
going to start graduate school. And then I got to this point where I was like, you know what? There's things that I want to do with my life that if I don't do them now, I'm going to be 50, kicking myself in the ass, saying, why didn't you do them? Mm. I grew up, like, from a young age, I grew up on stage. I was acting, singing, dancing, playing my saxophone. Like, that, I, I was just, I, that was all I did. Just played music, sang, danced, loved being in theater. Mm. When I became, when I started using drugs and alcohol, all that went away. And so there was this sort of unfulfilled, unrealized thing that happened. I'm like, if I don't do this, I'm, you know, I'm going to forever regret it. So I decided, I called school. I was like, hey, I'm not coming. I'm like, what? You want to defer? Oh, yeah, I'm going to defer. I packed up my truck into a, and a four by eight U-Haul mm-hmm. that I dragged behind it. And I started driving south out of California really not knowing if I was going to go to LA or New York. And I was like, the thought of going back somewhere where it was, can still possibly get to 20 below zero. I was like, I couldn't do it. So I just drove to LA. <laughs> I called my, I called a friend of mine. I knew one person in LA. I called him up. I was like, Hey, I'm coming to LA. You wouldn't happen to know anybody that's looking for a roommate. And he's like, yeah, I'm happen to be looking for a roommate because I'm moving. Mm-hmm. Nice. So in the three days that it took me to drive to LA, he found a place. I called him from the road, and he was like, he was like do you want to see it? I'm like, no, get it. <laughs> so I moved. I drove into Los Angeles, unpacked my stuff into an empty apartment that I had never seen before because he was still yeah. he was still finishing off his lease. Manifestation. And exactly, hmm. there was I, there was no pushing involved with that. There was me saying, I have pushed and I have pushed and I have pushed and I am still unsatisfied now what do I have to do and the only thing that I came up with was that I had to listen to what was pulling me and that is a very very different sensation when something is is pulling us into the future rather than us driving and driving and pushing against obstacles that are in front of us that's a there's a very different outcomes that came with that mm. and kind of gift after gift after gift sort of unrolled when I moved to LA. Um, my modeling jobs picked up, my acting jobs picked up. I was where I think I worked on seven or eight different theater productions, which is where I was really the most satisfied was being in theater. Um, and I was able to do a bunch of guest spots on TV, did some guest roles in films. And I kind of got myself to this point where I didn't have to be going into casting directors all the time. Like they would, they would just call me straight to directors or producers or they would, you know, offer me something small, but it was in this space where everybody who's gone to LA to be an actor knows that space of, it's like purgatory. You're in that space where something big just might happen. Yeah. I can't quit now because something might happen. Mm. And I had a, you know, I had a big agency. I had an excellent manager and, you know, two things that most, most actors there never got a chance to, you know, be with these, that size of an agency or be with that quality of a manager. Mm -hmm. And I was in this space where I was kind of doing what I wanted to do. And then I found out I was going to be a dad. And then some different realities set in mm-hmm. because 
like I said, when we sat down and started talking, I'm now back to working five days a week and I haven't worked five days a week since I was 19 years old. Right. 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 Um, <clears throat> so I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm in a place of uncertainty. Do I want to gamble that uncertainty knowing that I've got a kid on the way? Mm-hmm. And I got a long history with my, with my father who was not present for a lot because mm-hmm. he was in the Air Force. And our relationship was touch and go for a long time. And I blamed him for a lot of things. And I was like, I don't want to do that to my daughter. And so I just called my manager, called my agent. I'm going back to school. I'm going back to graduate school. Hmm. And I felt good about it. Never did I ever have the intention of actually working as a physical therapist. Hmm. I was just going to get this diploma, stick it in my back pocket, and then boom, jump right. But it was just so that it's, there could be something stable there. There's a safety network. Yeah. yeah. And uh, hmm. while I was in graduate school there, we had an instructor come in on, in my last year who changed the paradigm of PT for me. Because physical therapy for since its inception has mostly been, had mostly been up to that point, this is 20 years ago, had mostly been up to that point um, kind of training technicians. Mm-hmm. PTs were just people that did the things that doctors told them to do. Right? There, was, there was no thinking that was really involved. And now the profession has changed completely. And this guy that came in and taught our advanced orthopedics class, uh, he was like, that's, that's, that is the old school. The new school is that we need to teach you how to be a, ti- a diagnostician. We need to teach you how to clinically reason. And that was something that I hadn't really had up to that point. And so all of a sudden, my postgraduate um, clinical rotations, now I got put into very challenging clinical rotations places where I was forced to think mm-hmm. places where I was places where I was forced to use my brain in a way that PTs nor- hadn't been trained to use their brains as a diagnostician. Mm. Um, and that changed everything. So all of a sudden now, instead of this intention that I had of never actually working, I graduated, applied to and got into a residency program, then applied to and got into a fellowship program then a couple of years after that, started teaching. And before you knew it, I had this like full-fledged career and my a resume that was just sort of building and building and building and building. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and finished up my doctorate. And you know, that was my sort of my, my PT trajectory. Never with the intention, certainly never with the intention of what I thought it would look like when I first went into it. It, was, it turned in to be something much bigger than what, uh, than what I thought was possible. Mm-hmm. And some of those things manifested simply because I was like, you know what, I've had too many things that I've pushed for, gotten the results that I thought I wanted, and then been completely unsatisfied with those results that I have to be willing to do what some of my other teachers were telling me, which was, you gotta let go. Yeah. 
And it's always in the moments when we let go hmm. that the universe responds, right? And then depending upon what it is our particular belief system happens to be, whatever it is you call that energy, that energy responds. It responds to commitment. It responds to, you know what? I don't know. I've done all I can do. Hands off the wheel. I'm taking my hands off the wheel. Yeah. And at some point, that energy says, okay, you got to take the wheel for a little while. And then it's like, you got to let go of the wheel. So the whole process has been, has turned into one of listening and working on paying attention. And the place that I have to start with that is in my own body. That's what all my teachers told me to do. And that seemed to what has worked now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really am appreciating the paradigm you've laid out there of listening to the body versus listening to the mind, kind of bouncing back and forth between those worlds and having an awareness of when we are too much in our minds, we are too too far down the what we should do, what we're attached to. That would be attachment to outcome or the shoulds. The programming, the, mm-hmm. this is who I am. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. This is my goal. This is what I'm going to accomplish. And the balance between listening to your body. So in your experience, okay, so it's probably pretty easy, at least for me it is. And maybe if my audience is tracking with my line of thought, it's easy to see how we would suggest to an athlete that they should listen to their bodies more during periods of hard training. Right, There are times when you say, okay, I'm going to make it through this interval workout today. It's really hard. Or I'm going to make it through this strength workout today. It's going to be really hard. I'm going to feel the pain. I'm going to be present with it. But I'm going to, this is the goal. I'm going to, I'm going to go from A to, to Q on my workout list or my to-do list. And then after that, the next day, I'm going to get up and listen to my body. I'm going to go to the other side and reflect, be internally reflective and say, what is my body telling me? How smashed am I after that workout? Mm-hmm. Am I totally obliterated? Maybe that was too much load. Or am I... Nice and tired, but not, I can still do things like walk around and pick up a cooler and be somewhat functional in my life and go back and forth through that process. That seems relatively crystalline to me. How would you say, Ron, you listen to your body when you're making bigger decisions, life decisions, like I'm going to pack up and move from LA to Denver, or now is the moment for me to let go of my career as an actor and a performer and go back to school. How do, how do you listen to your body for those bigger guidance type of directional north versus south? So again, I will quote one of my teachers in that the secret of the practice is practice. Hmm. Right? I, we, start with the, we start with listening to the small things. We start by making manageable, manageable decisions. And when I was, you know, you said I was was in uh, was in a twelve step program for twenty five years. And when I was new to that program, and I was say, uh, you know, I walked in there a, sh- a shell, looking for looking for some sort of guidance, asking massive questions, having massive problems that I thought were massive, you know. Um, and the 
evidence or the, the advice that I kept getting was you got to ask smaller questions, right? So literally having a concrete checklist of what to do when I got up in the morning, right? And that works for a given amount of time until it doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And then we need to recheck in and we need to get a, another checklist. We need to get an, so like, all right, so you've gotten really good at getting up in the morning and not staying in bed. You've gotten really good at brushing your teeth and not walking around with smelly breath. Mm-hmm. You've gotten really good at wearing clean clothes rather than wearing the same crap over it. Like you've gotten really good at making your bed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now. Simple tasks. Simple. Yeah. Now what? Okay, well, now how do I talk to somebody in that job, job interview? So now mm-hmm. it, there's, there's, there's something that happens automatically when we show up for our own life. When we make a commitment to something, when we don't know what's going to happen, and we're willing to, we're willing to take in new information and commit to it. And I can't tell you, I have no idea how it works. I only know that it works, Hmm. but it involves, it involves a commitment to something. And like I said earlier, it doesn't matter which arena of life we're talking about. You get what you train. Mm -hmm. And so if we train that muscle, we become so much better in, I like your word, discernment. Right? We've become so much better in discernment. I was taught to ask myself those questions because of that path that I was on, because of the teachers that came to me because I was ready. Mm. Um, I was taught to stop. I was taught to take a breath before I responded. That was my very first indication of a higher power. It was one day... Something happened, and I didn't respond the same way that I normally would respond. You didn't have your automatic reaction. I didn't have an automatic. And, and it was, I used to be so short-tempered and mm-hmm. violent. Like somebody did something, a switch flipped, yeah. and I responded. And I usually responded with force or with violence. Mm. But now I'd been, I think I'd been clean and sober for, I don't know, a year maybe and I had an experience happen um, where it was in a parking lot where somebody cut me off in a parking lot took <clears throat> took a parking space that I was going into and on at least five occasions exactly like that in the past I had not only stopped my truck and gotten out of it yeah. and attacked their car hmm. but attacked them and this time, I took a breath, mm-hmm. and I didn't respond. My blood pressure elevated, I don't know, 15 seconds. And it went back down, and I drove up, and there was a spot that was even closer yeah. to where I was trying to get into. And I stopped in my, I pulled my truck into this spot, and I just broke down. Mm. Just broke down, just sobbing, just just sobbing, because I had I couldn't remember a time when I'd felt that much gratitude. So that was my very first experience of what then I called a higher power. 
and I called it a higher power because that's what I was told to call it. Um, but that was my first experience of it, hmm. that God or the universe or energy or whatever is lives in that space in between the stimulus and our response. Mm-hmm. It lives in that space between the vision that I am holding on to and my willingness to let go of the outcome. And that one incident, I'll never, I mean, I'll never forget that. Wow. And I think, a, I think what my programming was, because I was so good at holding on and pushing and pushing and pushing, mm-hmm. I was able to not forget that. Mm-hmm. I was able to, something profound just happened to me. I can't let this go. I can't forget how important this moment is. There's and that's something. where our liabilities, you know, what we somebody we decide or somebody else decides is, you know, our list of character defects where they can actually start to become our strengths. You know, this unwillingness to let things go all of a sudden became a benefit because now I was unwilling to let go of something that was profound, that was a gift Mm -hmm. that had manifested in a moment because that wasn't something I tried to do. That was something that was given to me. Hmm. Somebody didn't pull in, and then I suddenly remembered that, okay, I'm supposed to take a breath. You know, I'm supposed to, you know, recite a prayer. I'm supposed to get on my mala, whatever. Hmm. No, that's not what happened. What happened was there was a stimulus, and I stopped, and I didn't respond. I responded in a different way. And I believe that that is the only way that we have as human beings to know if we have changed, if we have grown, is that we have a different response to the same stimulus. Because we can, we can do all this sort of inner work, this spiritual work. We can memorize mantras, memorize prayers. We can help other people. We can, we can take all these sort of philanthropic, altruistic actions and still be so tightly wound around a program that any disruption to that program shatters this supposed, you know, uh, foundation, this new foundation that we've got. It's still rigid. It's still a rigid system. Right. A, you know, friends that are uh, that are vegan, right? And there are some people that are that have gotten so wound into a conditioned way of life that this thing that initially sort of set them free, they became a vegan, they became plant based, and all of a sudden everything changed in their life. Mm-hmm. Well, now all of a sudden. They've become so constrained by this structure that they're very unwilling to move out of that or experiment out of that structure anymore. Well, that happens with athletes all the time. Yeah. I did this. You know, this was my ritual. This is how I got to where I'm going to get to. This is, where I, this is how I got to where I am right now. At least that's what we think. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, there's no way that I'm going to venture outside. I'm not going to try something new. Because it's gonna it's gonna change my outcome, right? Um, and so even in 
this sort of learning to live a different way of life, memorize new things. You know, like I say, you memorize the mantra, the prayer, the service, the everything. Um, if something comes in and hits us sideways, and we don't have the ability to adapt, we don't have the ability to take a breath and then respond in a different way, hmm. we haven't really changed. All we did was switch addictions. You know? We're still reactive. Exactly. We're still defending our, our little... Still defending our beliefs. Wedge of cheese or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really the only way that we have to know if we have moved farther down the path mm -hmm. is if we are presented with stimulus and we don't respond in the same way. Mm. That is evidence of change. And I think change at a very fundamental level. Mm. And I think the trap of that is that we get we get stuck in this this idea that it was our doing. We were the ones that did it. Because I did this, because I followed this program, because I did this diet, because I decided to follow this particular regimen, because I went to this particular school, that I was taught by this particular teacher, because, 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 because of these things. Because me, me, me. I therefore am yeah. or was able to do this. Mm -hmm. No. You know, mm -hmm. when, to quote yet another one of my teachers, you know. It's very dangerous when we start confusing our preparation with our readiness. Mm -hmm. Just because we've prepared and prepared and prepared doesn't mean we're ready. Doesn't mean we're ready, yeah. You know, and we very well may be ready when we have done no preparation mm -hmm. whatsoever. And if there isn't a willingness for us to check in, with what's going on inside of us, more often than not, we miss that. You know, we miss that boat. Mm -hmm. So to get back to your question, how do I how do I know now in my life that it's okay to just pick things up and change to make major life changes or to make a significant change in my life? I've practiced it. Um, I've got I I've got tools. In my toolbox, mm -hmm. I know how to, I know how to I know how to breathe. Mm. You know, I know how to listen. And when I think I've got the answer, I know who to call to check my thinking. Mm. Do I really? I mean, this is what I'm thinking. How does that make? What does that sound to you? You know, I have I have teachers that I can go to. I've got friends that I can go to. I've decided to surround myself with people that keep sort of pushing those those personal boundaries a support network yeah. yeah you know and so making those decisions is a is a lot easier mm -hmm. and i think it also helps at some point if we start to turn those kind of things into a game you know life is about play mm -hmm. as far as i'm concerned this seriousness of being stuck in a particular pattern, no matter what that pattern is, there's limited, limited happiness in that. There's, there's not a lot of balance in a pattern hmm. unless that pattern is sort of flowing with the ebb and flow hmm. of, of life. You know, that, that's supposed to happen. 
me deciding when it's supposed to happen. That's just me deciding when it's supposed to happen. Wanting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so as Shinzing Young says, a teacher that I followed a bit, going back to your discussion about reactivity, his expression is, we have exactly three-tenths of a second before the terrorists storm the gate. I love that. Isn't that great? That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. 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 I found... Uh, before you get hijacked. Before you get hijacked. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's... Uh, Michael Holt taught me that through Shenzhen. Michael's a guy that I studied with in the Czech yeah. Institute. Yeah. Meditation teacher. Smart guy. It's truth. You know? Yeah. That's, and the interesting thing is that same message comes from, you know, a thousand different points of light. Yeah. You know? And we may hear it from 999 other points of light. And we're like, we can, we can parrot it back. But until you act on it, until right. you embrace until it. Until it hits. Yeah. And until we embody it, mm-hmm. until we've had an experience that is attached to it, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean anything. It's, it stays cerebral. Mm. It just... You know, enlightenment is one thing, but embodiment, that, that's essential. You know, getting the information, yeah, we can change a lot, but embodying something, is that, that's a very, very difficult, because we take it into our body. Mm-hmm. We can't be that thing unless we listen to that thing. Mm-hmm. Which I think, when we started initially kind of talking about, about athletes, yeah, there's, there's so much truth in, in that. We can't be what it is we think we're supposed to be or what it is we're trying to be until we start to embody all of what that means. And we can't know what that means until we start to unpack it, what that means for us. Because being an athlete to, you know, to one person is a very, very different thing than it is to another person. You know, I mean, there's, there are extreme high-level high level athletes that I'm like, yeah, I, that's great. I realize I know that I'm one of the best at what I do, but that's not the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Most, the most important thing is my is my practice, you know. And then you've got other extreme high level athletes. Mm-hmm. They're like you ask them, so what's your practice? And all they do is parrot back a you know a diet regimen, an exercise regimen, an onloading and offloading program um, regimen. Yeah. Um, the way something gets fit, the way you know, the, you know, like well, no, 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 no. What's what's like? What do you do? Like what, what what's important? inside of you like if we had to if we had to take all this off the table and be like what does it mean for you to actually be this person there's no substance behind it there's just an end goal mm-hmm. and if you look at if you look at people that have reached these goals wanting them one of them allowing that goal to sort of pull them towards it and one of them deciding that they're going to push and push and push and push until they achieve that goal. You got two different people that you're sitting and talking to. Yeah. Very, very, very different people. There's a level of humility that comes with um, 
sort of being drawn into something. There's a level of balance mm. that comes with that. There's a level of willingness to surrender that comes in with that. And you know, those people, quite frankly, are a lot easier to just sit across the table and have a beer with. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my racing colleagues, a guy named Mike Creed, used to say he feels that cycling as a sport really chose him almost more than he chose it. And that I think perfectly illustrates that paradigm, right? He felt like he was being pulled into cycling and surrendered to the outcome to a degree. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Whereas there's, there's, there's that story of the story of the bricklayers, right? There's this guy walking down the street and he sees this guy with a wheelbarrow and sand and straw and water and, and uh, he's toiling and sweating and grumbling underneath his breath and, breath and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm making bricks. God damn it. He's like, wow, okay. And he walks down the street farther and he sees the same setup. Wheelbarrow and a bucket and straw and mud and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm making bricks. He's just angry and, mm-hmm. and farther down the street he runs in the same setup. This guy's doing the exact same thing, and he's just kind of singing and smiling. And mm-hmm. he's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I'm building a cathedral." Mm-hmm. Exact same tasks, mm-hmm. right? Just different perspectives mm-hmm. on things. It all comes down to why. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why am I thinking what I am thinking? Why do I think that I am this? particular person you know when I start people ask me you know what are you I'm a physical therapist well that's a great that's a that's a great opportunity for me to turn the mirror back on myself I'm like well what does that what does that really what does that mean? mean you know I say I am this thing why am I this thing how did I arrive at being this thing what does that mean and what is it what's the end goal of this And I think is and I and I, that's the you know it, I think faith wants to be challenged. It wants to be questioned, just so that it can be reaffirmed. You know, I I it, I think it begs to be questioned. Well, okay, why do I have these beliefs? If this is if this is really true, why would I believe that? And we start taking. What we, what we think are are truths or mandates, um, and then turn those turn those things back into questions, like this is the way it is. Well, if why is this the way that it is, and then we we have to get into the moment. We have to get inside of ourselves to really uh, to really sort of unpack that. Mm-hmm. You know, we hold on to all sorts of of theories that don't really have great evidence behind them. You know, there's whole schools of thought in physical therapy that are built on um, paradigms that there's not great evidence to support. Unfortunately, the digger, the deeper you dig in a lot of topics, that seems to be the case. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know. Mm. One of my one of my other teachers said to me, you know, think of a theory that you've got that you hold to, 
And, you know, it, it's a part of your practice. It's a part of your life. It's a part of your livelihood. If somebody came to you and presented you with evidence that refuted that theory, sound evidence, what would you then do? Mm-hmm. Would you would really, you, it, would really you look at that it? evidence? Yeah, or would you just ignore it? Yeah, or would you plow through? <clears throat> or would you try to take this new evidence, incorporate it into mm. this sort of practice that you had, and start throwing things against the wall and see what stuck, mm-hmm. right? Are, are we willing to investigate? Or are we, are we in such a rigid system that we're just, you know, you know what? I just have faith. Yeah. Because faith can, can become a very rigid system, you know? This gets to a, an analogy that I recently heard Paul Cech use on one of his discussions. He was talking about he used the analogy of a, a really big sailboat. And he said, okay, this ship sets out from South America and travels through all the Caribbean islands, Caribbean, Caribbean, depending mm-hmm. on where you are, winds up in, you know, in the U.S. somewhere, in Florida or in Texas or something. And on each of these islands, in this hypothetical ship example, uh, at each port, a part of the ship is replaced. You know, in one port, uh, the bow has right. cracked and rotted, so they have to put a new piece of the bow on or whatever. In another place, they have to replace the mast. I don't know. My ship language is terrible, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. So bit by bit, this boat, this entire boat is replaced. Yes. And when they get to Florida or they get to to Texas, even though it still says Santa Maria on the side of it or whatever, or the sailing, the whistling pig, is this boat the same boat? Does it have the same soul? Does it what makes a boat a boat? And and I think that this is clearly one of the the things that people have the hardest time with when they're thinking philosophically about discussions like this. You know, I've been on this planet for 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, whatever. And I've always drank coffee. Or I've always thought that people who did X were a-holes. Mm-hmm. Right? Still steal parking spots or right. whatever. Pick your pick your event. Right. I've always thought that my grandmother told me that you always, whatever, drink a cup of water before you go to bed at night. Mm-hmm. And now for the last 10 years, my sleep has been horribly destroyed because I'm urinating four times a That's night right. Or, right. or whatever. And, and so how do you deal with that balance between disassembling or deconstructing, tearing down those belief systems, those scaffoldings of things that you've always done that you think make up, air quotes, you? You know, mm-hmm. I am this, like you said, mm-hmm. I'm this guy who rides my bike. I'm this person who gets up in the morning and has my coffee. It's my, so how do we, I mean, I, I think we've already talked about this, but I just want to comment on this. Like, how do we, I mean, the answer is faith, I think, but how do we, uh, how do we calm people's fear and anxiety around them losing their sense of selves that they identify with. And the answer, of course, is to let, that's the point. It's to let go of that sense of self and become greater than, be okay with evolving. Right. Right? To let go of those infrastructures of belief, those scaffoldings that are not only what we think makes air quotes us, but also complicate our lives. They weigh us down. They keep us from growing and expanding and having those experiences like you did in the parking lot. Yeah. Well, everybody's got a bottom. Right. Mm. Everybody's gonna everybody's gonna hit their own bottom, and f- for some people that bottom may be very very low. 
uh-huh. and they may need to get dragged across the bottom several times before, the before bo- something changes. The bottom being kind of the point at which you really, you're not yeah, capable yeah, of, of deconstructing anymore. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, and, you know, there are those to kind of quote 12 step literature that are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Hmm. But they're not very many of hmm. those. They are, you know, they're, they lie outside of the bell curve. Most people have an experience. They hit a bottom. They get to a point where they're like, There's, I, I can't make a way out of this. Mm-hmm. And so they ask for advice. They try to do something different. They're like, you know what? I don't know. Maybe I should go talk to that person. Right? They change the pattern. Mm-hmm. And in a willingness to change a pattern, they get new information. And for some reason, because they were in enough pain they were willing to incorporate some new information and then they got a new result, hmm. right? And we do that, we do that all the time in life. My, the problem is that most of the time, those deeper patterns of I've got it under control, I need to be able to, I need to, be able to hang a label on it. I need to be able to objectively sort of name something before I'm willing to accept it. Mm-hmm. Usually what happens in those moments where we have, we're like, you know what? I asked the question. I asked for help. I got some help. I incorporated, I incorporated that help. I got a different response. And now I actually feel better. Most of the time, because there's no atheists in foxholes, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the times, then when the bombs stop dropping, we get out of the, we get out of the foxhole and we're like, all right, God, whew, thanks. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll take it from here. Mm-hmm. And then we go right back into those same patterns. Mm -hmm. My experiences, and I've had a number of these experiences, and I think I'm very lucky because I have had these experiences, have been, I'm not going to forget that. I'm not going to forget the fact that I was willing to listen. I got new information. For some unknown reason, I was willing to implement that information. I got a different outcome. I feel differently. Now I'm going to hold on to that. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, those, that's, that's what I, you know, I, what I call like a God shot, you know? And this is growth, right? It's growth. Like, it's yeah. like something changed, but it come, but it came as a gift mm-hmm. essentially because my own best thinking got me right into a corner. Mm. It is not my own best thinking that is going to get me out of that corner. Right? The, the solution doesn't come from the same level of consciousness as the problem. Right. Right. It, right. It, it can't, it, it can't happen. There's an Einstein quote about this. Yeah. That was Einstein. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't remember your question. <laughs> what we were talking about, yeah. why we got onto that. Well, I think I was just talking about that balance between the ship, the analogy of the ship. Oh, right, right, How many right. pieces yeah. you can what? take away and replace before you've completely lost the soul of the same yeah. vehicle or person. Right. Well, I mean, we're not the same physical person that we were three months ago. Correct. All of our cells have completely you know, gone, through, been gone through multiple <laughs> um, iterations yeah. of themselves. Yeah. You know, and you know, we used to think that you know, even our central nervous system, 
was somehow fixed and rigid and couldn't be changed. And now we've got reams and reams of evidence mm-hmm. that shows that that's just not, that's just not the truth. It's constantly go- undergoing mm-hmm. new growth. Um, but something has to happen in order for new growth to happen. Mm-hmm. There, a, a pattern needs to be broken. And that's the great thing about a pattern is it, it doesn't matter where you break a pattern. Once you break it, you get a different outcome. Mm-hmm. Right? And the opportunity then to have a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And if we take the opportunity to look with different eyes, we're going to see different opportunities. Mm-hmm. It can't happen any other way. That is, that's the gift. But I think that's what, that's really what manifestation really is. It, manifestation results in a gift. It doesn't result in some material thing that happens because we did it to make it happen. Ron, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your Sunday to come come chat with me today and I want to be respectful of your time because we're running pretty long here but I've just got one final concept I wanted to run past you okay. to close on yeah and that is the idea of ritual and how it applies to our discussion in the one hand you were saying the starting point when you're when you're near bottom or you're at bottom and you're a little lost can be to start with simple things start with small questions do I brush my teeth? Do I not brush my teeth? Right. Do I put on pants or walk out the door without pants? Right. Probably in most cases, wearing pants is probably the right call, just to let you know. Right. But but when we're at that place, at the bottom, mm-hmm. those are monumental decisions. For sure. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, they're not trivial. Right. Yeah, yeah, when you're really at bottom. Mm-hmm. So so in that sense, you're, you could say that we're building a practice of ritual, perhaps, right? Uh-huh. You get that familiarity with your day. You start to adopt things. I'm going to get up and have tea. That's what I'm going to do every day. It helps me, helps guide me. What do I do when I get up? First, I say a prayer. I say I'm grateful for being alive. Then I go have tea, as an example. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, ritual is the building of those same constructs, those same scaffoldings of belief systems. Mm -hmm. I'm the guy who I have to have my tea every morning. Right. And to take a very simple example, like if I get up one morning and I'm rushed because my alarm didn't go off or I forgot I had an appointment or, or whatever, or I get woken up by a siren or a crack of lightning or a train and I forget my tea, then my whole day is ruined because I drink tea every morning and now I don't have my tea and I don't have my green tea caffeine or I don't have my polyphenols right. or whatever my belief system is about why tea right. is the thing that I do. So there's, I mean, I suppose part of the human experience is about having ritual it's about building up that scaffolding of preferences and what, maybe that's the, so the key. question is the question is you're talking you're asking about ritual where's the balance right. where's the balance in ritual like so what's the most powerful thing in ritual that's that's the question and the most powerful thing in any ritual is spontaneity aren't it, ritual and spontaneity juxtaposed or opposites aren't right Depends upon your belief system. Okay. Right? If I get stuck in this ritual and my definition, my operational definition of ritual is that A has to come after A has to come before B, which has to come before C, and ultimately before I can arrive at an end game, there needs to be a construct that needs to have been gone through, then ritual has lost a lot of its power 
That has that is now me deciding to take control. Mm-hmm. But if the spontan, if you look at so, you know, if I loosely quote, quote Jesus, mm-hmm. right? The power of prayer is not in the words that are said. The power of prayer is in the feeling yeah. behind the prayer. Right, so Meister Eckhart said, if the only prayer you ever said was thank you, that would be sufficient. Mm-hmm. Right? If you mean it. The intent. Right? It, it, everything comes down to, yes, comes down to intent. Mm-hmm. What is it that I really mean? You know, if I can have the most profound words of positivity leave my lips... But if they are coming from a place of doubt, they're nullified before mm-hmm. I ever before they ever leave my lips. Mm-hmm. Right? So ritual becomes, I think, more a part of an intention of getting to a place of surrender, getting to a place of sort of worshiping something that we have no idea what it is. This idea is like, I don't know how it works. I just know that it works. You know, if, if, my, if my day is destroyed because my ritual didn't go the, in the order that it needed to, well, then that ritual has become a fairly unhelpful thing. It's become a very rigid system. Mm-hmm. But if I get to this point where it's like you, what, like you said, you walked out the door and you and uh, and and you forgot your tea, and then something happened later in the day, and you're like, mm-hmm. well, that everything fell apart because I didn't have my tea. What a beautiful opportunity that is to just to step back, take a breath, mm-hmm. because that's where the magic is, is in that space. Mm-hmm. And be like, huh, it's so funny. I think that just because I didn't have a cup of tea, yeah. that that has somehow caused this, wow, I wonder where that came from. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Why would I think that? Oh, I think that because at one point I did something and it worked. And just because I did something one day in no way means that it's a formula for every other day. And if I overwater a plant, the plant dies. If I put the plant in too much sun, the sun, there, it's yeah. constantly dynamic, right? We're a gardener, essentially, mm. of, our, of our own soul. Mm. And a gardener has to pay attention. You know, what does the soil need? Does it need to get weeded? Does it not need to get weeded? What does it need in terms of nutrients? What does it need in terms of water? What does it need in terms of sunlight? It's been particularly cloudy for a few days, so you know maybe this plant needs to get moved to a place where it gets more. You, know, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, then ritual starts to become part of the flow. He's like, you know what? I missed my tea this morning, but I'm going to get it this afternoon. But just because I missed my tea doesn't mean that I have to miss my breath. Doesn't mean that I have to lose sight of my intention. Doesn't need doesn't mean that my my mission my purpose has somehow been affected mm-hmm. no 
That just means that the structure got, uh, it, it got affected, right? But, but that, I, I think we only arrive at that level once we've had all these other levels in yeah. place before us. You know, I think initially, I mean, my, my own path was my initially sort of God or the universe or my higher power was something that was outside of me. At some point, it became something that was inside of me. And then as it grew, it became something that worked from inside of me out. And then at some point, it just became something that worked through me. And then at some point, it just became something that is me. Hmm. But we can't start out at this place. Yeah. I was like, well, I am God. Well, okay. I mean, the, chances that, the chances you're going to make a lot of mileage off of that is not great. Right, right. right. There's, there's a process that's, uh, that's involved. Um, and the secret of the practice is practice. Mm-hmm. A man has to define his no before he can know his yes. Is that that's inter- integral to that line of thought to a degree, right? You have to kind of make mistakes, learn, understand what doesn't work, and then you slowly figure out the formula that does. Kind of a crude yeah, way. Yeah, except for when it doesn't. Right. Well, except for when we wake up one day and just shit just arrives in the mail, <laughs> or something changes. Yeah. You're like, wow. Whoa. Damn, out of nowhere. Right. I mean, I'd say, I mean, I would, I would better be lucky than good any day of the week, mm. <laughs> you know, absolutely. Mm. And I love learning. I mean, I can't stop myself from, from learning, but because I've been lucky enough to have the, the teachers along my path that I've had, mm. they've all been willing to tell me that look, that look, your job as a student is to become better than me. If the student doesn't leapfrog the teacher, then we devolve. And to be able to learn from people that, that have that level of humility, that mm-hmm. becomes that then becomes a template. So now in all the teaching that I do, that's one of the first things that I tell my students. It's your job to become a better therapist than me. Right. You know, and they may be new graduates in a residency or they may be students that are coming and work with me and they're like, well, how is that? What? Mm-hmm doesn't matter if they remember it you know, we get these little pieces of truth these things that we'll never for, we'll never forget and at some point they start to make sense hmm. that's really powerful because uh, you can imagine I mean I know my own life experience is starting study of any new kind of area that you can't you're barely getting your head wrapped around the basic concepts if you have a teacher that says to you who just seems godlike in their knowledge and their experience their wisdom their ability to apply all that information and you're learning from them and you're drinking from the fire hose and for them to say to you oh by the way your objective is to be better at this than i am at some point in the future i think that's a simultaneously probably a mind-blowing experience but also a beautiful carrot to give that person to kind of look forward to a huge gift just huge yeah huge gift yeah because it expands yeah it expands their awareness of what they can do in the future, but it also demonstrates that the teacher has faith in the student and the teacher believes in their ability to grow beyond them. That's, yeah, yeah that is a the gift. The second, no, the first, the very first AA meeting that I walked into when I was 25 years old, mm. I heard a guy say, 
you are already everything that you are ever going to be. Mm. Never forgot it. Mm -hmm. I was angry when I heard it because I walked into that space a broken, broken person. And to have somebody sit across a room and say, you're already everything you're ever going to be, the only way that I could interpret that was through my own limited consciousness, my own limited experience that I'd had in my life up to that point. Mm -hmm. And everything that had ever happened to me was influencing my ability to understand what God said, right? So it made me angry. But I also knew that I just heard something that meant something. And so it got stored away. Filed away, yeah. And I never forgot it. Hmm. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big theme for me with a lot of my clients that I work with is kind of trying to deliver this subtle but ultimately very potent truth that they already are what they need to be. They're, they're, they're everything that they can express in the sport is contained within them. Their goal mm-hmm. is to express it. Mm-hmm. It's to have the journey to let it out of them, yeah. right? And stop looking for external, especially in the sport of cycling, it's so externally focused. I mean, that's culture. It's endemic in our culture, but in cycling, it's so externally focused on equipment. You know, what bike am I going to buy? What wheels yeah. am I going to buy? What, how, what power meter am I going to use? What coach am I going to hire? What strength program am, am I going to use to, to do all these things that, and it automatically sets up a paradigm of less than like, or of, yeah, you know, I'm not this. good enough the way I am. So I have to add all this stuff to me to become better. Right. And you put our, we put ourselves on this sliding scale of better than or less than depending upon the company that we happen to be in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Man, that's so but endemic the world in is cycling. Full of stories yeah. of hmm. people that accomplished way more than they were supposed to accomplish with way less yeah. at their disposal yeah. than they were ever supposed to be able to, to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I think if we all serious, if we all... Again, turn that looking glass back on ourselves. We have we all have moments in our life where we have that same experience. Mm-hmm. It's like I was moving forward with inadequate information, not knowing what was going to happen with the equipment that I had on hand, and lo and behold, somehow I got it done. Somehow I got it done. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and then at some point, somebody said. It's amazing. <laughs> but it was amazing you were able to do that yeah. with what you had at your disposal. Mm-hmm. Imagine what you'd be able to do if you had this. Yeah. And then you had this and you had these clothes and you had this bike and you had, you know, you, you had these components yeah. and you followed this training. Imagine, imagine. And, mm-hmm. and that wonder, that trust, that faith that, that sort of manifested that goal out of us. Mm-hmm now all of a sudden gets turned into, well, I need to get this and I need to get this and I need to follow this and now right. I need to make something happen. I didn't need to make anything happen before. Because mm-hmm. I, I can't pu- hit the next level unless, something. yeah. Right. It's like right. a friend who, you know, so they kind of got pulled into cycling. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. The key is in following. Excellent. I think that's a perfect place to tie things up. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom. Really appreciate you coming and sharing with my audience. I think they'll 
a lot of people will really get a lot out of your your words. Uh, so they're just gonna scratch their heads. This guy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you've made it this far, that means you've really enjoyed the conversation I had with Ron today. Thanks for listening. If you did enjoy our conversation, you'll definitely want to check out Ron's Instagram channel, which is Mechanics of Spirit. We'll put a link to that in the show notes so you don't have to go searching about on the internet for it. One aspect of our conversation that I felt was particularly powerful was the tension that Ron talks about in the athletic paradigm of listening to the body versus listening to the mind or really having the mind overcome the sensations of the body. And I think that rings so true for many of us. It's so easy to fall into a belief system, to sign up for all of it and believe that the only path to success, the path to winning races or being the best cyclist or the best athlete in general is to be of strong mind. And that means disassociating from the signals that the body gives us, you know, shut up legs. As I said, that's Yenzi's motto. I mean, what is the entire series of Rocky movies all about? It's about being a tough guy, enduring suffering and pain. And we glorify that as athletes. We glorify that that toughness, that ability to not listen to the body or disconnect from those signals. And fundamentally, that's exactly what it is. It's a disintegration, a disconnection from the body. It's moving mind and body farther apart. It is intentionally ignoring what your body is telling you. And as Ron points out, in order to succeed as a high-level athlete, to a certain degree, you have to come out of balance. But I think that's part of what being in practice means, is recognizing that you're intentionally coming out of balance at times and then seeking to restore balance at other times. You're not going to turn yourself into a world tour athlete by ignoring what your body says for months or years on end. You're just going to grind yourself down into dust. So being realistic about your performance ceiling and honestly accepting what you can do, that's part of the practice of being an athlete, not mindlessly, repetitively, endlessly, or extremely choosing to simply forge ahead because you think it's the best path in spite of the damage you do to your body, your hormones, your muscles, your tendons. This is not athletic practice when you, when you choose this path. For me at this point, my movement practice is more about integration of mind and body. It's about union of those two aspects, synchronicity. And that means that I have ideas about how I'd like to move, but I also carefully listen to what my body tells me about my movement practice. How is it serving me? Now I have the luxury to do that because I'm not getting paid to ride my bike anymore, but 
most people who listen to this podcast also are not being paid to ride their bikes. I have a lot of gratitude for my audience and for the comments I get, good, bad, or otherwise. So, thank you. Listen up, space monkeys. A few final notes and disclaimers. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. I don't play one on the internet. So do not misconstrue any advice given on this podcast as doctorly or lawyerly advice. Also, during our show, at times, my guests and I will express our opinions. These opinions do not necessarily represent those of Fast Talk Labs, of Chris Case, Trevor Connor, Jenna Martin, or anyone else associated with Fast Talk Labs. If you want to reach out and tell me something, good, bad, or otherwise, feel free to email me at cyclinginalignment at fasttalklabs.com. Thanks for listening. Much gratitude.